This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined by Tony Black, or should I say AJ Black, or the Blackmeister, or <laughs> Mr. Blackhole Media. Any other aliases you go by these days, Tony? Well, I think you've covered them all there. I suppose my other one is my um, my, my my pen name now, which AJ Black Writer, which tends to be all over the place. Although I did have, I did used to have a, uh, a sort of po- online sort of space called Blackhole Media, as you've mentioned. Um, and then I shortened it for uh, internet purposes to B-Hole Media until I think my wife... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Until my wife pointed out the obvious uh, scatological similarity to that one, and uh, that quickly that's, went that, away. That's one down from a-hole media. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But no, it's nice to be here for um, for <laughs> some interesting nomenclature, shall we say. Very good. Absolutely. Well, I sadly, I don't really have any any aliases, particularly. I don't think the, the only, the closest I've had to an alias is uh, occasionally when I've had to do... Um, like author photographs or you, you know you have to have like an official photograph if i haven't you know if i've been too much of a cheapskate to get a professional photographer to take one and then you upload the photograph to wherever it is and you suddenly realize you're supposed to say who the who the copyright is with or who, the, who took the photograph yeah. i sometimes use the name will andrews which is my my oh. middle names are william and andrews so will andrews is my like my closest to an alias that i have basically that's <laughs> that's when I want to pretend that I'm not me and actually I was using the you know timer function on the camera <laughs> that's a good alias though because it's a I think that's a sort of very sort of normal name that James Bond would use like on a mission you know that would be I'm Will Andrews yeah. a universal expert could be anyone yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, James, James Bond is a weird one. James Bond is the secret agent who has no alias. He, he doesn't bother with yeah. an alias. He just is James Bond, yeah. doesn't he? And, you know, uh, somehow that seems to work. It's, <laughs> kind of, like you say, it's kind of almost, not bland exactly, but kind of slightly non- nondescript yeah. in a way. Anyway, enough of that. What we're looking at today is names of a different kind. We're looking at episode names. Um, I had this idea, basically, this was one that I slightly nicked off an episode of Trek Ranks, where I, I have nicked a few ideas over the years, uh, and I hardly recommend everyone to go and listen to the Trek Ranks podcast and, and uh, avail yourself of their many wonderful episodes and also see where we've pinched the odd idea uh, here and there. <laughs> but they did a brilliant episode, which is all about the coolest top five coolest uh star trek episode names and it sort of got me thinking 
actually, there's a lot that you can kind of pull out about episode names over the 700 plus episodes of Star Trek. We're not going to go through every single one of those 700 episodes today. But this obviously is quite a big topic. So I think what we might end up doing is we'll focus on the original series uh, this time round because this is probably, I think, going to be the richest theme really for these kind of quite interesting uh, episode titles. I suspect when we get to Next Gen and Voyager and so on, we, you know, we might find a little bit uh, more of the kind of prosaic titles um, coming in. But so we'll focus on original series this time, but we will be back in a future episode to look at some of these other ones, uh, other series as well. And uh, eventually we'll get through all, not not quite all 700 and whatever it, whatever it is, but, you know, we'll get through all those seasons at least of Star Trek. Uh, and, and it'll be an interesting point of comparison really to see how the approaches to naming things, you know, maybe shifted over time. And I guess I'm really interested in not so much the names that are purely descriptive. You know, if you think of the, the sort of classic Michael Pillar next gen episode, uh, the X, the Y, the this, you know, the cloud, the, the, the anomaly, the whatever it is, you know, but more the kind of slightly more poetic, slightly more kind of, um, mysterious, the, the, the names that maybe you associate a little bit more with the original series had quite a lot of them. Deep Space Nine brought them back in a big way. I'd say Discovery and Picard again are kind of started leaning in a bit more to these less descriptive, slightly more poetic names. And so I'm kind of particularly interested in the ones where the name add something to our understanding of the episode uh, where it's not even necessarily I mean sometimes you get episodes where the name is taking a line from the episode or an idea from the episode others you get an episode where actually the meaning of the episode is almost affected by the name something like Discovery's Lethe fantastic name for an episode because it conjures up this whole sort of wealth of mythological background that is not referenced anywhere within the episode itself but at the same time kind of gives you a slightly different perspective or just a slightly different angle uh, on what you're watching Uh, it's funny because star trek when you think of star trek episodes you do invariably think of the episode title but it doesn't always it doesn't always register how interesting or thought through some of these titles actually are and like you say some of them are very tethered to a specific thing in the episode but others can be quite oblique and that's, you know, I suppose in some ways from the outset, Lethe is a good example, you know, and you look at some of these titles and you think, well, what, what, do, when you, when you don't know the context of the episode, I suppose it, one, um, more recently for Picard would have been Nepenthe. Like before we knew that Nepenthe was a planet, everyone was like, well, what does that mean? What's, what's Nepenthe? You know, so, and then a you start for sorrow. Well, <laughs> you're right. This is where you start going down a, a rabbit hole, you know, of, 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 uh, you know, research. It is. Very interesting. And I'm very curious to see what we're going to dig up and uh, from this. Well, absolutely. And it, it should be said, you know, we're going to be whizzing through. Uh, we, we're going to go in air date order, which could get a little bit complicated because I realise once we get to like Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager and so on, it could all get quite muddled. But I just thought it'd be interesting to do that because I suppose it gives us a sort of historical overview of how these things change what kind of trends uh might be in play who knows maybe we'll sort of pick something up from that but as i say this is not going to be exhaustive i'm hoping this will be a sort of starting point for a further conversation on the babel conference on twitter online you know for people to chip in uh we are no doubt going to miss many fascinating illusions that totally pass us by as we as we whiz through and it would be great to you know pull some of those out if there are things that people think we've missed or that they'd like to kind of highlight absolutely do get in touch uh 
do hit us up on the Babel conference or on Twitter and uh, tell us your favourite, your coolest, your most obscure episode name references. Because I find these things fascinating. I mean, I... Uh, you know, I don't know about you. I know you're on to, to book two right now. I've written a few books by now. I love it when they let you name chapters and they don't, not all the books that I've done, some of them, they just have numbered chapters. I always enjoy it when you get to um, come up with little puns or little, you, you know, sort of almost in jokes or whatever. I did. I have to say, I, I wrote a First World War book where some of my chapter puns, um, my editor forced me to take them out because he thought they were in bad taste. <laughs> you know, punning on, on these things that, you know, in retrospect were quite kind of serious one way or another. But I do also, and also I occasionally, some of my books, uh, if anyone, you know, here's a temptation for you. Uh, if you want to go and read them, every so often I do try and slip in a little Star Trek reference in there into the chapter names. So I did have one chapter called The Ensigns of Command, which I, I thought I could just about get away with as a literary illusion and claim that I was referencing that poem, but really, you know, that was just in there on the off chance any Star Trek fans might be picking <laughs> it up. But I do think there is something, it is quite a creative act, naming a chapter, naming an episode, n- naming a book as well, you, you know, um, because you have to think, I, I suppose a good name in that context, and maybe that's different to what makes a good episode name, but there are similarities as well. Ideally has to, uh, and this is true actually, even of these podcasts. I mean, we have a rule on Trek FM, which sometimes can be a bit restrictive. And I know you don't apply these rules on your own network, I don't think. But here the rule is that the name of each episode has to be spoken within the episode. Uh, so it has to be a quotation from the episode. But at the same time, my feeling has always been that it has to equally somehow summarise, not not summarise in like literal terms, but kind of at least gesture to the theme of the episode or the overall uh, topic of the episode. So I think in some ways these these naming challenges are quite interesting because there is there's a sort of formal constraint placed on you and at the same time there's a kind of creative act within that um, trying to find a, you know trying to find a name that is interesting but also somewhat descriptive trying to sort of make that balance work one way or another. Yeah, you want something evocative and and fun i think a lot of the time i mean that's that's you you i've read some of your books and and that that is the case with a lot you know when you said that i was reminded of of some of your of your work and i was like yeah he does do that he does do that kind of fun play on words and things like that i i think it's a good way of engendering an audience member to what you're what you're putting putting across the more either like i say evocative or playful a title and and i th- i think titles can also allude to the tone of the piece as well you know if you've got something that's a bit more knockabout like a Ferengi love songs you know you're not going to go in that into that expecting a searing you know war drama of (laughs) you know you're going to you're going to sort of get an idea of what the tone and the playfulness of the piece is going to be whereas if you've got something a lot more foreboding like in the pale moonlight to use another DS9 example you're maybe going into that thinking oh what what is this about? You know, is this, yeah. So I think there are, I think there are uh, several facets to these choices that are made. And it's particularly interesting when writers or producers do opt for something different and they don't just opt for the cloud. <laughs> yeah, but, great. The cloud. Okay. There's a big cloud in it. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> or is there? Mm, well, mm, yeah. <laughs> No, I agree. I think it's it's kind of a tease, isn't it? It's a taster. It's a sort of, it's something to lure you in. And it 
It, it strikes me, actually, thinking about the original series. I mean, there were two pilots for the original series. The one that didn't go was called The Cage. Slightly boring title, possibly. I mean, we could discuss, you know, what the, what the cage represents and the fact that, you know, this sort of idea of a gilded cage and is it, is it a cage or is it a kind of, uh, pleasurable fantasy or whatever. But one way or another, it's not a particularly evocative title. Then we get where no man has gone before, where no man has gone before much more of a, promise in a sense as, as, as a, an introduction to that episode this is really offering us something this is suggesting you know something that is um you know going to kind of lure you in one way or another and I, I do think that that kind of attempt to almost you know obviously Star Trek had this kind of full start and then this attempt to kind of rebirth itself in a different form and and that name is almost part of that I mean obviously it's a reference to the kind of you know, whatever you call it, the captain's oath at the beginning. But I think I might be right in thinking that that, that may, that phrase had even sort of come around the, the other way around, if you know what I mean. I, I, but either, either way, it's, they're, they're very different styles of naming those two. I think, you know, one very kind of bold and factual and kind of, uh, a bit sort of stodgy and one much more sort of evocative and, uh, heroic and exciting and kind of a promise of something to come. Yeah. And, and as, as pilots go for a show, you would go for where no man has gone before. I mean, it is, it is a very, I mean, I know that ultimately it's, it's not quite that simple with, with TOS in some senses, given the, the, you know, the order of, of when things have, have released and things like that. And the fact the cage is technically the first sort of on air pilot, but it seems like a no brainer to have that title as, you know, if not that, then something like the final frontier, you know, something that very much sort of encapsulates the wonder and the mystery of Star Trek, as opposed to the cage, which could be, it could be anything. It could be a police drama. It could be, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily specific to this world and era from the outset. And that's the whole thing with titles. It's, it's from the outset that you look in on this stuff. And then you either understand the context of the title or it's a mystery or it's enticing, as I think you said. So yeah, I think. Where the, the fact that then TNG sort of reuses that and has where no one has gone before, I think speaks volumes to how how good that title is. It's also, I mean, there's an interesting element, I think, that when you say, well, you know, what's a good title for a pilot? And someone who knows more about kind of TV production may, may be able to correct me on this. But my understanding is most shows, the pilot is just called pilot. And I've always found that a bit disappointing as well, in a way. And I, and I understand the kind of you know, reasons for that and so on. It, it is a pilot is a weird, it's often sort of an episode and not an episode, but that's always struck me as sort of slightly disappointing in an odd way. You know, you've got this opportunity to, to make your sales pitch and you're kind of, you're not even able to do that with the title, but I suppose it also depends, you know, who is the title for? And we've had with Star Trek, uh, historically, the titles of Star Trek episodes have always been up on the screen, you know, in big letters, kind of uh, like a movie. These days, that's no longer the case. I mean, with Discovery and with Picard, we know the titles of the episodes because they release them online and they tell them what, tell us what they are. But they're not actually anywhere within the episode itself. And I always found that quite disconcerting when the X-Files did that, right? And I think for for me, that was the first show that I was aware of, and I'm sure it's not the first show to have done that, but to have 
quite interesting, quite meaningful titles, but not actually to put them up on the screen. So there's this weird element of, I mean, you know, in Star Trek, we always talk about what's ca- what's canon is on screen. What's that's that that's the sort of definition of canon. You know, where do these titles exist? Are they part of the story that's on screen, or are they? I suppose they're part of the sort of apparatus around it in a sense. Which you could say, even if it comes up on the screen, you know, so does the name of the executive producer or the writer or whatever, which is obviously not this kind of paratext. It's not the, 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 the meat of the story. But I do think in some ways it's a shame when shows don't put their episode titles up there because, you know, these, these titles, these names, they add something. They do mean something. In some cases, as I say, they can add quite a lot to our understanding of what's going on. And if it's not there, then the average viewer who isn't you know, reading the Radio Times, who isn't collecting the VHS tapes or DVDs or whatever it is down the line, isn't necessarily aware of them. Although you could argue now with streaming, Netflix, Amazon, etc., that issue has been taken away because these shows are not really broad. You know, they were broadcast without episode titles, but when you watch them, when it, you know, when you see it come up in the list, the title is there. So you're kind of, you're exposed to that again, even if for some period of time you weren't. Was well, two things. I think just quickly going back to the the pilot issue. It's my understanding that I think part of the reason that a lot of uh, pilot episodes were called pilot is because they were produced without the necessary understanding that they were going to go to a series. So they were almost produced as a solo entity and called pilot, and then not named. But it's weird when you get something I, I suppose one that leaps out of me is lost which is called pilot one and two now that, that i'm pretty sure that was commissioned to be a full season pretty early on i mean and with loss that could be a pun of course it could be it given could that be. it starts with a plane crash <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> it's true and there is something specific in that pilot episode about a pilot which you're absolutely right but some of these shows that were commissioned to have a season still kept the name of pilot you know i think the x-files again is a good example of that in that i think you know they got a full season and it was still called pilot i I think it is an odd choice and it's one thankfully star trek has booked all the way through because none of the pilots for as far as i can recall anyway none of them are called pilot they're all they're all given specific names and i suspect that's because they were all commissioned as a series as opposed to just having a pilot pretty much they all had the you know the cachet that they would go on to be series so i think but they weren't though because the cage and where no man has gone before well, were pilots that's, and they were you know the cage was rejected that's true where no man has gone before was accepted and then they went on and filmed whatever it was came next corbin might maneuver or you know whatever they moved on to when they kind of got the green light so right. that's that's a weird thing and, and it, this may just be a historical thing i to be honest i don't know enough about 1960s tv versus kind of later uh generations you know maybe that was just a historical thing that the idea of you know using the term pilot came in later i think um, it did i think i think that's cause it you couldn't put it up on screen i suppose that's the thing yeah could you? i don't i don't think do you i, I don't mean, i assume that you only call it pilot if you're not going to put the title up on the screen i can't i don't uh, know because otherwise that's going to alienate your audience who will yeah a large number of them not know what that word means and think you know where's the pilot Where, where's this, the pilot you know, I mean, pilot who's flying who's <laughs> on the plane what, you know what? You're, you're actually right i completely didn't think of the tos then but i think subsequent series i think had had more you know sort of commissioned straight away and i think it's it, it, you're right about the idea of the pilot i i think in terms of the the names of episodes, I suspect part of the reason that's gone out of fashion for most 
TV shows. And not all. You know, there are some that are still quite popular in the modern day. Something like Doctor Who, for example. They still put up, at the end of the credits, they put the title of the episode and the writer underneath. But I suspect one of the reasons that... And I'm surprised that's a technique that isn't used more widely, actually, because it seems like a good place to to put your title and the writer or the director of that episode. But... Uh, maybe it's because they felt like a lot, and this could have started from people like Chris Carter with the X-Files and, and some of those shows that were leaning a little bit more towards the pop culture mainstream, I guess. Maybe they felt like it would take the audience out of the drama if they saw Inquisition pop up, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I, and I don't know. I mean, I think it could well be, it could well depend on the showrunner on, you know, the network, all these different things. It seems quite bespoke, but it's definitely something that has ebbed and flowed. I think to this day, you still have TV shows, some of which show their episode titles, some of which don't. And it is, it's quite strange the way that's, there's never been a fixed rule on this. And Star Trek only booked that trend from Discovery onwards. So it's, I agree with you though. I think it would be nice to see those titles. I, I do. I think it gives you a little bit of a, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the old fashioned, you know, guest starring, special guest starring, and then all the line producer, you know, all that. You don't have to do that anymore necessarily, but having the episode title, I think grounds you a little bit more in what you're watching. And it's a helpful reminder if you're just, if it is just on the TV and you're not sure what's coming yeah. up, uh, of, of which one it might be, this is it. <laughs> you know, at the very least. This is but, it. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, we've been rambling for about 20 minutes and we haven't even got beyond the, the first the two pilot. pilots of the original series. So <laughs> let's press on and we'll, we'll see what jumps out at us. And as I say, we're undoubtedly going to miss some interesting ones. And, you know, we, we'd love to hear listeners thoughts on these. One of the first ones actually that I wanted to pull out on that front. Well, no, no in fact, I, I'm going to start right at the beginning with the man trap. Now that I think is a fascinating title because it sounds so pulpy and so kind of sexy and kind of it's it's a weird it's it's a strange title for star trek on one level but on the other hand it does it does conjure something and to i don't know about to you to me it conjures this kind of pulpy sensibility which i think is you know in some ways is quite in keeping with that episode that they did pick that episode to go first because they liked the idea of the kind of sexual element i guess they liked the sense of the kind of interpersonal drama uh, it's not a very sci-fi title at all. It's not where no man has gone before. Uh, it's not, you, you know, it doesn't conjure up the vastness of space or the adventures of the Enterprise or anything like that. It's very much focused on the individual human level and on this kind of, I suppose, there is a hint of this sort of virile sexuality that we get with, you know, with, with Kirk. And in that case, I suppose, with, you know, it's more bones that we're focusing on. But... I don't know. I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting choice of title for the very first episode of your new series. Yeah. I think maybe it's, it, it is a little bit of a, a wink to the age, you know, that it's in, in that, yeah, it is something that's going to be quite, seem quite hip and cool. But then when you know, when you look at it and you, you see that, that monster, in, <laughs> it's not really that sexy, really, when you get, when you get into the meat of the episode. Uh, <laughs> that is but, certainly true. But yeah, I, th- I think, I think you're right. I think maybe that's what it is. That's what it's designed to do to, 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 because we've got to remember that Star Trek might be iconic now and might, you know, immediately have that pull, but it didn't then. It was just any, it was just another show, you know, so things like titles can, they, there is a power to them, definitely. So you might be right there. 
But the next one I wanted to flag up is one that actually it never really crossed my mind. It might be a reference, and I'm not 100% sure what it's referenced to, but The Enemy Within, which on one level is, is, you know, descriptive of what's going on in the episode, that Kirk has this kind of darker side within him that gets, you know, sort of split into a separate personality through sci-fi shenanigans. But I was quite struck when I looked into the sort of background behind this title my understanding is I think it has a kind of Cold War inflection. And obviously this is, you know, the 1960s, this is the original series, that that phrase, enemy within, it is something that was in kind of some kind of parlance, basically. You know, more thinking about kind of spies, fifth columnists, you know, people with, with the enemy within a state rather than the enemy within a human being. But it just struck me that's one of these titles that, again, may be more of its time than it appears to be insofar as it's kind of coming out of the sort of cultural landscape of the era that the episode's being produced in as well. Mm, yeah, I think so. Because, I, I mean, it's it's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde story, isn't it? But I think there is a cultural aspect to that one, a fear that ripples underneath of, you know, of, of you know the, the communist threat, the idea of, you know, infiltration, as you say, and... Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's it's a fairly to the point title. You know, you could you could ha- you could have put that in the Twilight Zone or something like that. But it's not necessarily so- Star Trek specific. But it's I think it's good. You know, it, it underscores what the tone of the ep again the tone of the episode is without necessarily saying what is going to be in it. And I, I, I it fits I think the story in that episode really really well actually. Okay, two episodes after that, we have What Are Little Girls Made Of? Obviously, a reference to the nursery rhyme. So probably the first that we've had so far, actual kind of literary allusion for Star Trek, I think. And there are going to be a lot more coming down the line, but not kind of highbrow literature in this case, but uh, slightly cheeky kind of nod to the nursery rhyme about, you know, whatever it is, slugs and snails and puppy dogs tails and all these horrible things that boys are made of and what are girls made of? Sugar and spice and all. Actually, funnily enough, since I was talking about book titles and so on, uh, the first book that I wrote was a book called The Sugar Girls, uh, which was about women who worked in a uh, sugar factory in the East End in London in the 1950s. And the original working title that we had for that book when we were working on it was Sugar and Spice, because they were kind of cheeky and there was a kind of element of fun and, and cheeky, not naughtiness really, but you, you know, there's a sort of cheeky sensibility. And the publishers vetoed that because they said they thought it sounded kind of sordid somehow they, they thought sugar and spice sound it sounded it sounded too much it sounded like it was going to be kind of saucy it was too right. sort of racy and so they came up with this title the sugar girls uh which you know is, is how the women were known at the time they were known as sugar girls and they thought that was fine it was more it was more descriptive what no one realized at the time is that in certain african countries sugar girls uh means something very different so oh, i know the situation because we called it the sugar girls first of all when we uh set up the website for that book google blacklisted it and i couldn't work out why no one could find our <laughs> website and it turned out that it had previously been owned by some kind of porn site it was some, some sugar girls porn site and then so we managed to i had to have a conversation with google about you know why are you blacklisting our site and persuade them that actually this was a book about sugar factory workers and then uh, even today the facebook page because i set up a facebook page for the book Probably two or three times a week, I get messages from 
guys in various no. African countries asking if I can hook them up with a sugar girl. Really? <laughs> and occasionally I write back and, you know, send them a picture <laughs> of one of these like 70 or 80 year old ladies that we interviewed. Amazing. <laughs> you know, so is this what you had in mind? But um, <laughs> so there you go. So that gives you an insight into the, the perils, I suppose, of, um, you know, choosing the wrong title, or choosing, <laughs> you, you know, a title that has, you know, has associations that you may or may not be aware of. But anyway, yeah, what are little girls made of? Obviously alluding to that nursery rhyme. The next one that jumps out of me uh, is Dagger of the Mind. Dagger of the Mind, obviously a reference to Macbeth, the idea of the, um, you know, the, 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 is this a dagger that I see before me or is it just a dagger of the mind? Is it a kind of hallucination? That kind of intersection between madness and violence, I suppose, is kind of what's being alluded to there. And this is an episode that's very much about mental illness and about the kind of criminally insane and the kind of about that sort of nexus. But it's also strikingly the very first Star Trek episode to lean on a Shakespeare title. And it's absolutely not going to be the last. No, there's one coming up very, very soon mm-hmm. as well. You very, know, and, very soon. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I th- what, what's interesting in using that is that, you know, Star Trek didn't necessarily have to go down that kind of road. And I, th- I think it's maybe one of the first instances where Star Trek begins to cement itself as the kind of franchise that we came to love because, you know, not every science fiction franchise from the 1960s was quoting Shakespeare, you know, particularly one that's set in the 23rd century on a starship. And, you know, with the, it could have been a very, I mean, TOS in many respects is quite pulpy. But it could have been completely pulp, you know, like 1930s adventure serial kind of pulp. The kind of stuff that we, you know, Tom Paris spoofs is Captain Proton, you know, in Voyager. And it's not. It's, it is much more uh, a, a measured exploration of the future. But to have those classical illusions, and like you say, ones that carry through, you know, in the entire sort of 25-year stint of this original series, you know, crew, all the way to the undiscovered country, I think he's great, you know. I, I think, and it's and it's remarkable how how well Shakespeare actually works in Star Trek, right from the off. Mm, absolutely, yeah, it does. And uh, and as I say, we will certainly see more of him uh, one way or yeah, another, and yeah. in, in some episodes more more directly than others. Before we do, uh, next up after Dagger of the Mind, well, first of all, the Corbin might maneuver, which was the first episode shot, I think, and has. It, not as far as I know, an allusion to anything outside the episode, but I just think it's a wonderfully evocative title because that is the real kind of Flash Gordon, uh, sci-fi adventure title. Do you know what mm, I mean? It's, I yeah. mean, it's, uh, Corbamite, what is that? It's, it sounds like dynamite. It sounds like it's going to explode. It sounds <laughs> yeah, like yeah. exciting. Maneuver sounds quite kind of, uh, you know, high tech and, and daring sort of daring do. I think that is a, to be honest, I would have made that the pilot if I were them. They shot it first. I would, I would put that one out first because I think it's a fantastic episode. I think it's a really brilliant episode of the original series, but also I think it has exactly that kind of action adventure kind of title that oddly, you know, in some ways you might say the original series is a little bit light on those kind of sci-fi adventure titles. And that is absolutely one of them that's going to kind of draw you in, give you a sense of kind of excitement to come. It is interesting that they don't do more of those kind of things. But, um, I, I, maybe, maybe it's hard to say why really because it's hard to say because there's lots of factors that go into naming an episode I suppose you could say something like Balance of Terror is similar you know it's it, they're, they're quite sort of striking uh, you know ideas quite stri- striking title ideas but I suppose the difference is the Corbomite Maneuver 
is pretty specific. Like you say, Corbomite is something that isn't a thing. It's something that's a thing within this universe. So in that sense, that is different than even the more, you know, to the point or maybe even science fiction-y kind of titles. Yeah, I, I, it's surprising. It's Because TOS was very swashbuckling at, at certain points. So they should have done more of, of, of those kind of titles, I think, yeah. Now, you mentioned Balance of Terror. I'm going to jump ahead uh, for the sake of this. I never thought twice about that title. But actually, as it turns out, again, I think this is one of these ones where we may be lacking the historical sensibility of the time to pick up that this, I I think, is a kind of Cold War title again, quite specifically, because when I Google it, which, you know, to just to puncture the bubble, you know, I say we're doing this off the top of our head. I am also glancing ahead and occasionally uh, sticking things into my search engine while we're talking. Uh, I get an article from 1958 by a man called Albert Wallstetter called The Delicate Balance of Terror, all about, you know, the, the US and the Soviet Union and the, the balance of atomic weaponry. So that's the balance that's being invoked there is uh, not just the balance between the um, Federation and the Romulans, but the balance between the United States and the Soviet Union. So there's, you know, again, there's an episode, a great title. I mean, I love I love that episode. I love that title. But also, again, with a kind of contemporary resonance that may or may not be lost as time moves on and we kind of lose these reference points. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, the Shakespearean reference points survive. The classical, you know, ancient Greek allusions survive. These kind of older literary allusions survive uh, one way or another. But the episode titles that are obliquely referencing something contemporary, there is a danger that as time goes on, we just come to kind of miss that. And certainly if you stick it, the, the danger for trying to Google these things is that you just get endless references to Star Trek. Of course, you know, the internet being what it is. So to try and uh, sort of dig underneath that and find out what was this, you know, what did this phrase actually mean before it was a Star Trek episode, you, you know, can be tricky, but sometimes there are extra layers there that we might be missing. That's a good one. Yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, you, obviously there's the whole inspiration from like submarine pictures mm. like the enemy below and run silent run deep and all these kind of things but yeah they didn't go for quite for that kind of title it's very interesting that they they co-opted something from a an article that was very specifically about cold war you know anxiety yeah it may not be i mean i'm not saying they necessarily took it from this article i think i mean when when i also look up balance of terror i get from dictionary.com the distribution of nuclear arms among nations this may just be a i mean i wasn't familiar with it but it was obviously a phrase that was in usage yeah uh first recorded earlier than that um article actually the this is dictionary.com says first recorded in 1955 so obviously again that's you know that's a phrase that at the time may have been in kind of common parlance to some degree that to us might not be to the same extent as you know i don't know something like i made a short film many years ago that i called exit strategy which was about it was it was a kind of it was a shakespeare scene actually but it was set in the present day and that was alluding to the at the time it was all about the war in iraq and did we have an exit strategy and that was a phrase that was just on the news constantly these days i don't know whether the term exit strategy really means anything to anyone (laughs) you know but um so it's it's that sort of thing where you you know you can be alluding to something that at the time seems very uh, present and very contemporary and very uh, significant and but you know history being what it is and and you know our lives moving on and so on years decades down the line those kind of references are the kind of thing that we might miss 
So then an interesting one that comes up sort of towards the middle of the first season of the original series is the Menagerie. Now, obviously, uh, the Cage pilot did have a title, didn't get broadcast. They decided to reuse it, but they decided to give it a slightly different name that means the same. Well, it doesn't quite mean the same thing, but kind of means something very similar in a sense, or at least evokes the same image. Let's put it that way. I mean, it, 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 a menagerie is not a cage. A menagerie is a collection of animals. The animals are all kept in cages. It, but it, it's kind of, it's very much zeroing in on the same element of the episode when you're going to name it, if you know what I mean. Even more strangely, I think in some ways for an episode that does do quite a lot of work, puts quite a lot of effort into making it more than just broadcasting that unaired pilot, but to building whole frame around it, it almost seems even more strange that the single most important element of that story, where you have, after all, you know, Spock displaying orders, doing all this stuff for Pike, this whole kind of story about the kind of pre-TOS life of the Enterprise and so on, that you should focus on the menagerie, on the collection of creatures, on the kind of the plan, I suppose, that the Telosians have, again, seems quite striking. It, it always feels to me like it's almost it's not quite a synonym but it, it almost feels like you know okay there was the cage then there's the menagerie they, they sound like they should be sort of two parts of the same thing like they kind of complement each other somehow yeah yeah in, in another kind of series you would have had a two-part episode called the cage and the menagerie probably although i i, I feel like the menagerie isn't necessarily as clear-cut a title as the cage. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what the term menagerie was at first. You know, when I first watched TOS, I, I'll confess that I wasn't, I wasn't, that wasn't a word that was massively in my vocabulary. Whereas cage is a bit more straightforward. So, so ironically, they made it more cerebral when they, uh, yeah, <laughs> when they maybe. Second time around. Yeah. I mean, that could just mm. be me, but most people might be listening to this thinking, well, menagerie, of course, you know, but I don't know. I think I, I don't know if it's quite as widely used parlance for the same idea. Yeah. You're right. It's a fancy French word. So in that <laughs> sense, it's like, maybe it's a bit more highbrow or a bit more kind of, um, sophisticated. Yeah. It's an interesting point. And, you know, what does it say? That you basically, I, I suppose what I'm getting at is it feels like that's an alternative title for the cage yeah, rather yeah. than a title for an episode of Star Trek, the original series that yeah. is using footage from the cage. If you know what I mean, it's very much, it's basically just like, okay, we're not going to call it the cage. I don't know why, because they didn't like it when we made that one. Uh, we're going to call it something quite similar, but just slightly different and, and pretend it's something new. It does sound like that, really, that that's, yeah, that, that, that's the whole, episode to a T really repackaging something <laughs> presenting it on a new player making it a bit longer yeah more syllables and yeah. you know string it out a bit more <laughs> yeah absolutely next up conscience of the king now we talked about this one quite a bit uh way back in our shakespeare episode because this is obviously uh a quotation from shakespeare it's a quotation from um a line in hamlet it also is quite relevant to the episode because the conscience of the king is referencing hamlet's plan to entrap claudius basically the, to entrap his conscience by presenting something in a play 
that will uh, cause him to react in a certain way and, and reveal whether or not he's guilty. Now, in The Conscience of the King, the Star Trek episode, you have Caridian, who's the Shakespearean actor who secretly is a monstrous uh, mass-murdering dictator. And there's this sort of question of, you know, is it the same guy and are they going to be able to reveal that he's, you know, this guy is actually the murderer or not? So there's a kind of, I think it's a very well-chosen title in, in that sense and that it captures both the Shakespearean ambience of the episode and specifically this idea of the kind of intersection between uh, this kind of criminal storyline and the theatre and the idea of, you know, actors on stage performing um, and so on. And it's also a soliloquy that we talked about a little bit um, when we were talking about Shakespeare because it's the soliloquy that famously defined David Warner's Hamlet, which was massively successful production of Hamlet in the 1960s. Um, David Warner obviously went on to become a big part of Star Trek. Uh, and this was the soliloquy where they made this kind of discovery and performance that the soliloquy could incorporate a degree of audience interaction. And this was a kind of totally mind-blowing concept because I think up to that point, people had tended to assume, if you think of, say, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, previous versions of Shakespeare even, that often the soliloquies were understood as being almost a kind of internal monologue, a bit like the captain's log. You could say there's always this question, is the captain's log in TOS, is it really a log or is it basically just, you know, what's going on inside uh, Captain Kirk's head at the time? The soliloquy was often sort of interpreted as a, a thought process within the character's own mind. And what Warner discovered with this one was it was much more a direct conversation, or at least it could be played very much more as a direct conversation with the audience to the extent that the famously when he he asks the question am i a coward someone in the auditorium invariably shouted back yes uh and then the next line is who calls me villain and the and the person would say you know bob from essex or whatever it is you know <laughs> and uh, basically the whole the whole soliloquy turned into this kind of bit of audience interaction potentially or maybe not the whole soliloquy, but there was the, ten the the potential there and so i always think that's quite interesting that david warner who's this guy we associate with you know these wonderful roles in star trek also is the actor who kind of really changed to some degree the understanding of that soliloquy and it's also one that i love i mean i when I finished up in drama school. The very first job that I did after leaving drama school was playing Hamlet for a small uh, local troupe of players, not not massively unlike the troupe of players uh, in the play. Very daunting, uh, very big responsibility, etc. I'm not sure that I necessarily did a particularly amazing job of it, but it's definitely an experience. I was going to say that I'd recommend to anyone. I mean, it's not one that necessarily is going to come your way. But certainly as a young actor at that time, it was, you know, and Hamlet is an amazing, you learn a lot doing it, I suppose, let's put it that way. But one of the things that struck me doing that play was I never, I did a lot of Shakespeare and I never really liked the soliloquies because I liked the drama, I liked the kind of interplay, I liked the, you know, dialogue. And I always felt a bit like a lemon just standing on stage kind of talking with no one else there. This one, for some reason... I always liked, of all the soliloquies, it was the one that I responded to the most. And it's the only one I think that I remembered uh, for years afterwards. And I think still remember, I may, with any luck, I may still remember it now. And 
this is going to be massively self-indulgent, but <laughs> since we're in lockdown, since uh, Sir Patrick Stewart is giving us his sonnets every day, I thought I might, I- I'll-, I'll give it a go and I'll, I'll see go if on. I can still remember this soliloquy. Uh, and you'll know when it's over because we'll get to the title of the episode. It, it might take a little while, but um, so here we go. So this is the Conscience of the King soliloquy from Hamlet with the benefit of a few years of you know, rusty memory. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand? Tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. And all for nothing. For Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? Why, he would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the innocent and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I... A dull and muddy-metalled rascal peak like John O'Dreams, unpregnant of my cause and can say nothing. No, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain? Breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this, huh? Zooms, I should take it. For it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Else ere this I should have fatted all the region's kites with this slave's offal. Oh, bloody, bawdy villain. Remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I. This is most brave, that I, the son of a dear father murdered, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a cursing like a very drab, a scullion. Fire upon it! Ah! <sighs> About my brains. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it hath no tongue, yet will it speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil. And the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me. To damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. There you go. Very good. (laughs) Encore! Encore! 
<laughs> now that's the only one I remember. And I, to be honest, I only remember it because I used that as, a, as an audition piece for years afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to say, <laughs> so don't kind of be, be honest, stuck. how many times have you practiced this today? In, in anticipation, <laughs> I, did, I, I ran it. I ran it through in my head when I realised we were going to hit this episode. <laughs> that was fantastic. Google, that... Google in one window and uh, and uh, you know Hamlet in the other. But I mean, it is an That's interesting great. soliloquy. I think it. It's. I mean, you know, this goes a little bit beyond the the Star Trek episode in a way. But I do think it's a fascinating piece of theatre, and I do think it's interesting that that's the one that stood out in TOS in the 1960s when you had David Warner doing this very famous production where this was the key moment this was the kind of key soliloquy and obviously it's very apt for the play in the Star Trek episode I mean they're they're doing a production I think of Macbeth not of Hamlet but there is a kind of resonance of of Hamlet that kind of hovers over the episode because you have Kirk very much in this Hamlet role of the indecisive uh, oddly for Kirk, you know, we think of Kirk as the man of action, but Kirk in that episode is, is trying to decide, can he act? Does he have enough evidence? And I think that's the kind of key thing for Hamlet. There was always this idea that Hamlet is this kind of dithering character who doesn't know, you, you know, just kind of can't get round to, to doing what he needs to propel the plot forward. I mean, in fact, Hamlet is just asking for reasonable evidence, uh, rather than going, you know, as he said, on the word of a ghost that may be, may be lying to him, you, you know, and equally, as, as he says, you know, out of his, his, his weakness and his melancholy, you know, he knows his, his mental health is not, I mean, without saying that he's completely mad necessarily, he, he's not in the greatest state of mind. Uh, he doesn't want to do something really, really stupid uh, without the evidence. And so this is, you know, the conscience of the king is the key idea that that's going to be, that's the key deciding factor. You know, if he can get the king to admit his guilt, then he knows the right thing to do is to kill him. And I suppose for Kirk, okay, it might not be killing him in Kirk's case, but again, it's this idea, you know, you've, we've got to extract that confession in a way. We've got to uh, resolve that ambiguity. We've got to be absolutely certain that we've got the right guy. Why it's really good as a title, I mean, that's a great description of uh, an, an analysis of those Shakespearean themes that are within the story. But it's also great because it's, again, showing that Star Trek has one eye on, you know, the highbrow, essentially. You know, it's it's not afraid to use those illusions in the the very title of the episode and really, you know, some people will would know Shakespeare who are watching Star Trek and will go, oh, okay, that's a line from Hamlet. And others wouldn't. And others would be curious about it. And I, I just think it's, again, it, it builds on the dagger of the mind in what it's trying to tether Star Trek to as a piece of fiction. And I, I think that's, I think it speaks to the ambition of this show already that early. Absolutely. That, you know, on one level, we've got Shakespeare. I mean, you know, people always talk about Star Trek as these kind of modern morality tales or this modern mythology or whatever. I mean, equally, you know, I feel there's a kind of link. I'm sure Patrick Stewart has made this connection that, you, you know, Picardo was obviously has his collection of Shakespeare with him. And we have a kind of co- complete works of Trek on, you know, Netflix or on our shelves in DVDs or whatever it is. You know, there is a kind of element there. These are, uh, it, there is a link between those two writers insofar as I think Star Trek, insofar as I think Shakespeare is a very humanist writer as much as he's of his time. And there are many kind of generic trappings of that time. He's also the one dramatist of that era who absolutely zeroes in on 
the kind of minutiae of human psychology and human nature. Star Trek obviously is a very humanist uh, project, a very kind of humanist mythology. So again, I think there's that kind of link there. You know, there's a reason that Shakespeare has continued to inspire Star Trek, not just within the episodes themselves, but also again as a, a great repository for drawing episode titles that lend them a little bit of, as you say, a little bit of gravitas, a little bit of kind of class one way or another. And next up, we've got a few, well, surely that seems fairly descriptive. The Galileo 7, I quite like that. Sounds kind of heroic. Yeah. Um, uh, slightly sort of pulpy again, uh, slightly kind of, but, but with the kind of sci-fi edge. Squire of Gothos, I like, because you've got there the blend of the historical and science fiction-y insofar as Gothos is a, is a, is a planet in the episode. Though obviously also sort of suggests something gothic, something kind of, you know, it has that kind of historical, uh, hint around it again. And then Tomorrow is Yesterday, classic sort of science fiction, mind-bending uh, title. I love that title. Um, I mean, there are quite a few. that TOS has a few. There's Return to Tomorrow, Tomorrow is Yesterday. You know, yesterday is the middle of next week, Return to you know, whatever. But um, I think that, that I quite like those titles. As much as they're slightly, in some ways, they're slightly oblique and potentially slightly confusing, they definitely hint at the kind of wildness of the of the format if you know what i mean of the potential to do slightly uh, something bold there's something bold about a title like that i mm. think yeah yeah there is because it's deliberate again i th- that's exactly the kind of title i think you you would say on a twilight zone or an outer limits you know there there is, there is a certain science fiction mind bendingness about tomorrow is yesterday that i that yeah it's really good it's re- and it's very very it's a, of a different flavor for sure, than some of the others. So, just jumping ahead, Court Martial, fairly sort of descriptive. Return of the Archons, I quite like that as a title, but it, uh, again, sort of relatively descriptive. Space Seed is quite an interesting one, I think, because it conjures an interesting image. Because again, there's a kind of, it's again one of those ones where there's two, almost two images in opposition to each other. Space, which we think of as very empty and black and kind of dark and cold and lifeless. And then seed, which suggests something growing. And obviously in this case, it's something that kind of, uh, you know, is growing potentially in something quite devastating. But an interesting one, again, a sort of interesting choice there, I think. It's a weird one, that actually, because... when you actually see what the episode is about, it's not necessarily, you know, Space Seed, if you put, if if you had a Voyager episode called Space Seed, it probably would have involved some sort of, you know, nebula creature growing an egg, you know, or something like that. Whereas, (laughs) do you know what I mean? (laughs) Whereas it's not actually, you, you could have gone for something far more, Shakespearean and had, you know, the, the, the tyrant, you know, the, the, the frozen tyrant or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's a bit crap, but you know, it's something, something a little bit more evocative about Khan and those people. And, and they don't do that. That's intriguing. Actually. It is. It's interesting. You're right. It's almost underplaying it. I would say Yeah. when the episode itself has quite a sort of, there's an element of grandeur and there's an element. I mean, we talked about Khan as this sort of Promethean character. You're right. They could have gone a bit more kind of, OTT with that one. That's an interesting one. A Taste of Armageddon. That's good. The word taste, yeah, I quite like that. It's got that sort of, uh, there's there's a slight edge, there's almost a slight sort of satirical edge to that, I think, uh, which works very well with the episode. The Devil in the Dark, one of my favourite 
original series That's episodes. Annoyed. I yeah. think the first episode of Star Trek that I ever saw, possibly, though I don't know that I was really paying attention at the time. Fantastic title for an episode. And of course, once you've seen the episode... It's one of those ones where you might start to wonder, what is it actually referring to? We'll get this again when we get to uh, Next Gen with The Measure of a Man. But the devil who is the devil in the dark? Is it that monster that, as we assume, is it the hoarder? Or is the devil in the dark actually the humans um, who are, you know, causing the death of all those little creatures? So it's an interesting... One, it's a very evocative title in itself, obviously with the alliteration for a start, but it's also one of those ones that's slightly ambiguous. And I think that is great when you have an episode title that the more you think about it, the more you realise it has kind of layers of meaning, uh, depending on how you interpret it. Yeah, it could go in multiple directions, that one. Yeah. Errand of Mercy. Now, this is a weird one because it's, again, that doesn't really, for me, capture the feel of that episode this episode in some ways it feels like quite a sort of cynical episode it's quite uh, i mean i enjoy this episode but I, I, I suppose the organians are on an errand of mercy that's the idea but it's a strange one because for the majority of the episode you might be wondering if you noticed that that was the title up on the screen you know who is who is supposed to wh- where's the mercy in this there seems to be it seems to be conspicuously lacking in mercy somehow the errand that everyone is on in this episode so it's an interesting one but I, I guess it does you know it's one of those ones that maybe by the end of it it sort of comes to mean something but again it slightly kind of underplays it it's slightly kind of bland for an episode that is quite exciting and dramatic and uh you know sort of feels like it has quite sort of high stakes and quite kind of a lot of drama it's an oddly underplayed episode title yeah, because it's the episode that establishes the Klingons as the Russian parallel, essentially, doesn't it, really? It's got that, you know, it, it's it's quite iconic in that sense. So it's stra- may, maybe, oh, maybe it's leaning towards a dramatic, you know, flavour because of a kind of mortal enemy that's hovering on the horizon. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's both... In some senses, dramatic, but in other senses, not. Yeah, you're right. It's it's a little bit dry, and it, yeah, they could have gone. They could have gone with other other more dynamic choices there. Next up, the alternative factor, much better title than it is an episode. Yeah, I would say yeah. arguably, <laughs> you know, Brandon Shamatella, you know, come at me. But um, <laughs> he's a huge fan of that episode. But it is a great, great sort of sci-fi, you know, pulpy sci-fi title. City on the Edge of Forever, fantastic episode. Oh, wonderful. I was going to say even better. It's not really an even better title. But again, also a really beautiful, the kind of lyrical, evocative title. And this is the kind of title that TOS would do from time to time. And we've got a few more coming up. That The one that leaps to mind for me is For the World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky. Yeah. You know, these episode titles that are almost poetry in their own right. And The City on the Edge of Forever is just a very beautiful and kind of um, poetic way of describing what that episode is about. I mean, it's, it's not descriptive at all in a kind of literal sense, if you know what I mean. It's not it's not the war that wasn't or, you, you know, I, I, who know, you, you know, alternative future or, you, you know, something like that. It's, it's, you know, even zeroing in on the city. I suppose, again, it's, it's also one that has two meanings. I mean, is the city on the edge of forever that kind of ruined location around the guardian of forever or is it the city where the story takes place yeah is it new york you know back in the 1930s yeah which is on the edge of forever insofar as one small act within that city can uh change the entirety of the future Uh, and it could almost 
be both because I mean the the area around the Guardian of Forever, it is a kind of ruined landscape. There is a sort of a mystery around that. Although my understanding is that this this the the whole design of that episode was um, based on a misunderstanding or a misreading that whoever it was who'd, who'd made the notes for the production designer said that there were to be runes everywhere, as in <laughs> you know like sort of mystical <laughs> druidic uh, uh, writing. That was yeah. supposedly tied into the idea of, you know, this, this portal that could travel between times or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and at some point this was misunderstood as being as ruins. Uh, and therefore they, they made this very kind of iconic, uh, image. I mean, it's, it's the image that, uh, is our, our logo for this show. Even it has yeah. a kind of a ruined, you know, a pillar fallen over at the, the bottom of it. But so that amazing iconic image was actually down to a, a misunderstanding about what was being asked for. Happy accident. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that always the way though? Quite often with, you know, these, these great things that you, the, it doesn't quite happen. It's not the intent half the time. I think, I think, I think City on the Edge of Forever as well is, I mean, it, 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 you can tell that that episode was, you know, conceived by Harlan Ellison, you know, who's a science fiction writer. Cause this, this, this could have been the title of an Arthur C. Clarke book or a, you know, a, a, one of the great science fiction, you know, Ray Bradbury or someone like that. One of the, one of the big science fiction writers of that age. I think he could have, you could have easily had that be a literal sort of, you know, sit, grand city with great crystalline pillars, you know, on towering in the sky and some adventure at the, you know, the far flung corners of the galaxy. So it's got, it's got a real, you know, awe about it, that title, even though ultimately, like you say, it has these dual meanings and the stories and anything like that. But it's, it's fabulous. It's absolutely fab- fabulous. It, it, if you had, I mean, surely that was in, that was in that Trek Ranks episode. I think it must have been. I can't it remember. To be been. Sorry, it was a while ago <laughs> I listened to it, but you know, it certainly should have been. Next up is an episode that I think has one of only two exclamation marks. Now, someone correct me if I'm wrong in, in Star Trek. This is Operation Annihilate, which has the kind of musical theatre exclamation mark at the end. If only they had done it as a musical, you know, that would have been even more amazing. Uh, but again, very pulpy, very kind of action-adventure, yeah. very kind of, um, you know, yeah, this is going to be a bit of a romp. Then we've got a mock time. Great episode. Strange title, again. I mean, is it a mock? We call it a mock time, or is it... A mock time. It's uh, a lot yeah. of these Star Trek episodes, you know, you get this again with like Q, everyone calls it Q who. Now I've always assumed the pun is it's saying Q who, as in like, you know, <laughs> here you are. <laughs> Take a look. Yeah, yeah. It's the Borg. You, you know, wake up uh, over there. I, I, no, uh, I've never thought of that. Maybe actually. I'm wrong. Maybe I, it is like no, Q. Might. Q's here. Who's this? You, you know, it, it's as kind of uh, as bold as that. I don't know. You, you but, might be you know, right. A mock time again. It's one of those ones you wonder: is are we are we sort of pronouncing it wrong? Is it the the a mock time? If you know what I mean. Mm, mm. But anyway, interesting title. Quite bold. Quite brief. Again, doesn't really conjure. Doesn't really conjure very much. Again, sort of no. a lot of these. Oddly, these classic episodes, Space Seed and Mock Time, you, you know, they're, they're underselling it. They're underselling the drama, yeah. the excitement, the kind of grandeur of these episodes. You know, this is, we get to go back to Vulcan. There's like massive, you know, big stuff going on for mm. our, our characters. Uh, a Mock Time could be a description of almost anything. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, anything yeah. where things go to the proverbial. But next up, another wonderful literary illusion, Who Mourns for Adonais? Now, this is a poem by Keats, I think. Well, it's it's by Shelley. There you go. It's not a poem by Keats. You're right. It's a poem by Shelley about Keats. There you go. Okay, fine. It's a poem by Shelley about the death of Keats. Keats obviously is being likened to 
Adonais or Adonis, Adonis, a figure from classical literature, not the same person as Apollo, but uh, uh, it connected to Apollo insofar as um, there is a story in which Adonis was out hunting. He was wounded by a boar, which was sent in various versions, either by Aphrodite or by Apollo. So there's a link at least to to Apollo there. Adonis, obviously, you know, in kind of popular parlance, a, a, a handsome, attractive, you know, uh, heroic kind of sexy man, uh, which is very much the image of Apollo in that episode is as one of these kind of sculpture, you know, almost like a kind of Michelangelo sculpture or something of uh, um, you know, a, a kind of sexy old Greek. So there's a kind of, uh, there's an illusion there. And obviously it's an illusion that is going to be brilliantly parodied and we'll get there eventually in DS9 with the episode Who Mourns for Morn, which is kind of not only referencing Shelley, but referencing Star Trek. This one's got a lot of different sort of deeper illusions, hasn't it? And that's, again, it's, again, it's that strange flip side that on the one hand, you know, you'll get an episode that's named an underplay. Then you get an episode like this where it's really sort of tapping into those, those deeper illusions. And they're not things that they're, they're things that now we can, you know, call upon memory alpha and dig in, go into the databanks and, you know, get all this up. But back in the sixties watching this, your common or garden viewer wouldn't necessarily have understood all of those deeper allusions to the poetry and this kind of thing. But it's great that it's there. It just heightens the whole thing. And you could have, you could have just called this, you know, Apollo, <laughs> you know, or the, the Greek planet or something like that, the you know, something really dull. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. You know, they, and they right. don't, they go for something more literary and that's great. Yeah. That inspires us to go and, uh, you know, okay, I forgot which, uh, <laughs> romantic poet it was, but, you know, at least, you know, potentially inspires us to go and look up the poem. Yeah. I'm not going to do a performance of this poem. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. The changeling. This is an interesting one. I can't help with the benefit of Star Trek hindsight looking at this episode and thinking Star Trek, the changeling, and it's very hard to like wipe the image of the founders from my mind. But I think the illusion has got to be, to the idea of a changeling as in the idea of is it fairies who replace a child with like a, a fake or an alternative or, or whatever a, a baby that's swapped um that's kind of swapped in even knowing that i'm slightly stretching to work out what the link is to nomad in this episode i guess there's this element of it's looking for its true creator it's looking for its true you know father the the the, the kirk whatever it is it's a slightly puzzling one it's, it's one of those ones where there's a kind of an illusion that maybe is not if anything it doesn't fit all that well with the episode itself now maybe i'm wrong i haven't seen this episode for a while you know someone tell me on the babel conference if i'm missing something really obvious why this episode is called the changeling um what they're hinting out there but i feel like it's an episode title that slightly misdirects rather than hits the nail on the head if you know what i mean but yeah more a duller title would have just been nomad but that that, that mm. would have been interesting in its own way actually having something or, a little bit more head on or as people uh cruelly subtitled the motion picture the motionless picture where nomad has <laughs> gone before <laughs> <laughs> because this was the story that you know was, was kind of on again there. Yeah, um, but you're right. Nomad, Nomad. I think the title of a novel by James Swallow, uh, well-known right. Star Trek novelist as well. Oh know, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. many other other things. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it it seems weird. This is a story about a kind of machine intelligence. It's strange that the title doesn't hint at the mechanical side of it. But you know, there you go. 
mirror, mirror. Now, interestingly, when we think of the the mirror universe, well, exactly, we think of um, (laughs) Alice in Wonderland. And I think that's partly because of the DS9 episodes that, that made that illusion quite explicit. And also in Discovery, obviously, we kind of had this Alice in Wonderland theme in Discovery season one. Mirror, mirror is a reference to Snow White. That's what the, you know, the mirror, mirror on the wall. Which is kind of an interesting, I mean, obviously, okay, it's about the mirror universe. It makes sense. It's got to have the word mirror in it. It's kind of a bit like all those Q episodes. <laughs> they have to have the word Q in them or the letter Q in yeah. them. But it does also suggest this idea of evil, you know, someone who is kind of ultimately evil and a villain and yet sort of wants to, I mean, what does she, you, you, I don't know, not just evil, but kind of a kind of ambition and a kind of, narcissism as well and a kind of you, you know all these sort of things are wrapped up in it so i just think it's interesting it's it's a title that is is very memorable very evocative yes it reminds us that they call it the mirror universe in star trek whether you think that makes any sense or whatever who knows but you know it also it uh conjures this idea of this kind of villainous yes yeah. cackling you know i was gonna say mustache twirling obviously she's not she doesn't have but do you know a kind of classic it's, evil villain like a not not a yeah. subtle realistic flawed human type villain but a kind of evil uh nasty yeah doppelganger villain. so it's, it's, yeah a kind of a kind of you know a baddie well it's a simple idea isn't it you know the, the whole mirror universe it just the, the the flip side the dark side of, of your nature yeah do you want to have do you, do you want to have some fun and find out what the uh, the alternate titles were in certain foreign territories, Duncan, for this one? Oh yeah, so, do you know the answer to that? I do. Uh, in a few, anyway. So um, France weren't messing about because it's just mirror, and I don't know what mirror okay. is in French actually. Um, they're saving money on like the the, the, you know, <laughs> the letters that go yeah. up on the screen there or something. All those commas, <laughs> Germany. <laughs> Germany had uh, a parallel universe, so they're very okay, on the nose, you know. Quite literal. German efficiency, right, you yeah. know. Um, Michael Pillar would approve of that one, I think. He would, he <laughs> would. Portugal had the mirror, which, whenever someone says that, I just think of the newspaper, which isn't a good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, the, in the UK, anyway. Spain went for mirror, little mirror, with a, with a comma. Um, which is interesting. I don't know where the little comes from there, but there you go. And but my favourite by far is from Japan, which is Terror of the Ion Turbulence. Wow! Yeah, See, now, like, that's, that's a, a name. Sci-fi title, isn't it? That's yeah, a kind of proper, you know, schlocky sci-fi. But they're taking it to quite a kind of grand, dramatic, you know, sort of slightly Captain Proton level there. <laughs> right next up after mirror mirror sticking uh you know with the theme of the disney villains uh the apple uh though obviously this is alluding to a different apple uh this is the apple of the garden of eden now th- that's kind of an interesting one you could ask what is the apple in this context i mean we have a story where kirk is the uh you know there's this discussion at the end isn't there of who's the the serpent is, you know, is Kirk the serpent in Eden, basically tempting these people with knowledge, with a kind of, uh, you know, future of free love and, you know, whatever it is that, that he's kind of offering yeah. at the end. So what's the apple? That's the question. You, you know, what is it that, what is it that he's offering them? Because it sort of seems that's one of those episodes where Kirk makes this quite impassioned speech. He, he's, he says something like, you know, it's freedom. You'll love it. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this is America yeah. offering its values to the world, you know, very much against the Soviet Union in that context. Uh, the apple is 
it's not just something that's tempting, but it's something that's fundamentally good and, you know, right and kind of, it's healthy. You know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. It's, it's, you know, the apple is going to be good for you. Uh, it's not just something that is a sort of cursed temptation. It's actually what you ought to be having. Yeah. It, it, I, and that's, I suppose they're playing into those preconceptions, those religious preconceptions as well, I think from a, uh, for a certain, aspect of the audience that they they understand the illusions of an apple beyond being a piece of fruit so yeah it's it's an intriguing choice that is actually definitely it's it conjures up lots of deeper imagery symbolic imagery without having to go too far after that we have the doomsday machine again i think one of those episodes that as much as it is sort of a literal uh title is very much alluding to the era you know, it's coming out of the idea of a kind of doomsday yeah. device, a nuclear device, etc. A kind of, you know, and they talk about that in the episode. They talk about the nuclear bombs and so on. But kind of, again, a title that grounds it in the 1960s as much as in the 23rd century. Cat spore. That's a weird one. There's a cat. Cat spore. It yeah. has paws. <laughs> is, is, is this a witchcraft thing? Oh, a cat spore is a noun, it's a person used by another as a tool, a dupe. Okay. According to dictionary.com. Now, I did not know that. So that's interesting. There's, um, a cat spore, an idiom meaning the dupe of another, derived from La Fontaine's fable, The Monkey and the Cat. And so there you go. Apparently in the episode, apparently, and I can't remember the episode that well, but Bones points out that Scotty and Sulu are used as cat spores to lure Kuman oh, down. So I, so right. I think he uses that term. But yeah, I didn't know that See, either. I had actually. forgotten that. And I have to say, I yeah. haven't seen that episode for a while. And all I remember is no, weird, like, pipe cleaner aliens at the end and the giant cat. So mm. I sort of just assumed <laughs> we, were looking, we were talking about the giant cat there. But, you know. And you three go. witches uh, as well. Three witches. Like in Macbeth. Yeah, absolutely. Like in Macbeth. But not, as far as I know, a Macbeth reference. No. Maybe I'm no, wrong. No, not in Maybe the same way. Maybe is in Macbeth, but if it is. Feels... Feels like a Shakespearean or word, actually, doesn't it? Cat spore. So that sort of thing you throw out bit, there. Could be. But yeah, who knows? But seemingly not. Uh, yeah. At least if Google's to be trusted. iMud. <laughs> now, iMud, that's a great one because it's a reference to iRobot, I assume. Famously filmed with Leonard Nimoy. I didn't know. Um, they had, well, they adapted that with Nimoy. It's really iRobot. They adapted it twice with Nimoy for The no Outer way. Limits. And I only know this because I watched the 90s Outer Limits where he played a different role. So, yeah. Ah, okay. So, okay. So, so a reference not only to the Isaac Asimov novel, pr- probably cool. a slightly cheeky reference to the fact that Leonard Nimoy starred in this uh, well-known TV adaptation of it. And it feels, that whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with, with Q. And having mm. all those play on cue, oh, basically, yeah. which I think I think has exactly. you had mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that. And and when they had Clear Harry Mudd, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheap. I mean, that is, as I say, there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to <laughs> to resist. I don't know. I, um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan. To be honest, yeah, cheap well, puns all the way. Maybe you're right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but you know, arguably with the Q episodes, they they took it a little bit to an extreme. I don't know. Metamorphosis. I don't find that a particularly memorable title for that. I know that's the episode with Zephyr and Cochrane, and I know there's a weird creature in it, and there's some uh, probably some kind of metamorphosis. Is there? It's like that's that's a weird one because it's almost 
that's that feels like a generic start. That could be the title for a million Star Trek episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's an allusion to Ovid. I find that a slightly strange one. I don't, but again, you know, hit us up in the Babel conference. Tell us what we're missing here. Why is that episode called Metamorphosis? And why is that the right title for it when there are other much more memorable things about it? A stronger argument, I think, can be made for Journey to Babel, the next episode. Now, that is a kind of interesting one. We have the Babel Conference on Trek FM where people can talk. Uh, we had the Babel Conference in Star Trek. We had the Babel episodes in Star Trek Enterprise. And then, obviously, we had the biblical Tower of Babel, which is an interesting metaphor for all these things. I mean, we think of the Babel Conference as quite a positive thing. Maybe this is because of Trek FM and so on, uh, because this is where we all get together and we have a nice chat and we're all very polite to each other and, and, and don't get into nasty rows like they do on other Star Trek forums. But in fact, the Tower of Babel, you know, as is alluded to in the Deep Space Nine episode, Babel is a place where, yes, people come together, but they all speak different languages and it's all a bit of a mess and confusion and no one can understand what anyone else is saying. So it's a strange, there's almost an element of kind of, it's a sort of undercutting that, you know, journey to Babel sounds like we're going to something quite positive, but equally that word conjures up possibly a bit of an image of, of chaos, you know, almost the opposite of smooth diplomacy. Uh, if you think about it, it's kind of, um, something chaotic and, and problematic is going to happen there it's an interesting it's an interesting title that it, it's i think it's there's, there's a grandeur to that title that is really interesting it's it's it almost suggests a a destination where something profound is going to happen and i you know i, I guess in many respects that that's the case but it's yeah it's really it's really good it's a really interesting title and i it's again a, a, a biblical illusion that they, you know, they enjoy these kind of playing with mythologies and these kind of titles and, and evoking these classical sort of mythological ideas. You know, it, it's just, it's really interesting the way they, do, they really do that in TOS more than any other show in Star Trek. Absolutely. Although possibly Discovery gives them a bit of a run for them. Yeah. Right? We'll, we'll, we'll see when we get down to Discovery, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Friday's Child, obviously a return to the nursery rhymes. We had the, the little girls made of, uh, sugar and spice. Now we've got Monday's Child is Fairer Face. Tuesday's Child is Full of Grace. Wednesday's Child is Full of Woe. Thursday's Child has Far to Go. That's the harsh one, I think. That's what, you know, you don't want to read on your school report, isn't it? Friday's Child <laughs> is Loving and Giving. There we go. That's, yeah, nice. that's quite on nice. Saturday's yeah, Child want... works hard for a living. <laughs> on Saturday? That's terrible. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you wouldn't want to be Thursday, definitely. Absolutely we all not. work hard for a living. I don't know, yeah. Has, yeah, far to go is not great. Ch- loving and giving, pretty good. Now, there's a child in this episode. What's the link to... it? Is it born on a Friday? There must be a reason for that. And I'm missing it, to be perfectly honest. They're not always that apparent. You know, it seems like you you really have to dig in and fi- and figure that out. You know, unless it it's it, on on that face of it, they're just not always that apparent these these reasons that these episodes are called this. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. I have to say one of the reasons this topic appealed to me was I, I thought it was one we could do with minimal research. Now I'm, I'm slightly discovering <laughs> possibly that's not always the case because there are illusions that I just can't quite get my head around. But anyway, it's an allusion to that poem. Uh, either we'll go and watch the episode or if not, uh, someone tell us what, why is it Friday's Child and not, you know, what, what, why is it the one that's whatever it was? What did I say? 
Fr- uh, uh, Friday's Child is loving and giving. Was it? Oh no, hang on. The, according to Wikipedia, Friday's Child is full of woe. Well, is that? Now you see. Now you say that. That's what I that immediately came sense, into my it? head. Friday's Child is full of woe. That's what I thought it was. But I didn't, no, I, I didn't want to contradict. Wednesday's, Wednesday's child is full of woe. That's what I'm getting oh over, my God. over when I Are they all full of woe? So, no, Friday's child is loving and giving. But you're right. If it was full of woe, that would make more of a sense. That would make more sense as an episode title in a way, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe they thought Wednesday's child didn't sound as good. I don't know. Anyway, this is the baby that is, is named some weird name to do with McCoy because he's there when the baby's born, isn't he? And he ends up playing a role in the novels, I think, as an admiral or something years down the line. Anyway, <laughs> Wolf in the Fold, notorious episode. This is the Jack the Ripper episode. A wolf in the fold, I guess, is the same as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Is Scotty a wolf in sheep's clothing? No, he's not. Uh, that's <laughs> the, the answer to this. Could almost have a question mark. This one, uh, is, is there a wolf in the fold? No, there's a crazy, mad Jack the Ripper psychic monster thing roaming around. Uh, I suppose that's the wolf. That's a wolf in the fold in that it's kind of unknown and unseen and taking over people. And, and, uh, it, it is a wolf. In, I suppose it is a wolf in sheep's clothing if, if Scotty's the sheep and not the wolf. But I think it's slightly confused by the fact that everyone keeps saying about Scotty and his misogyny and his weird attitude towards women, <laughs> how he hates prostitutes and, you know, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> all this crazy yeah. stuff. So it's, uh, he's maybe not such a sheep as, as Scotty no. might normally be. But there we go. That's the illusion. Strange in some ways. I guess they didn't want to tip their hand that it was Jack the Ripper story. But you might yeah. think you'd want to kind of allude to that somehow, given the cultural sort of cachet of, of Jack the Ripper, you know, for good or bad. Yeah. Um, it's in some way strange that the episode doesn't allude to that in the title, but. It's a, this is a, this is a little bit, this is a little bit John Harrison and Khan, this. Just tell us, you know, you're going to get more people <laughs> interested. <Yeah. laughs> Just call it Ripper, you know. Ooh, Jack the Ripper, maybe, you know, that's. Yeah. Trouble with Tribbles. Great. Oh, descriptive, funny, very good, alliterative, excellent title for an episode. Even Playful. better when we get to trials and tribulations, where we get a kind of proper pun in there. Yeah, as well, I think. very good. And what's the other one called? I was going to say a few triples more. It's not really called that, is it? What's what's the what's the the animated series triples episode called? They um, uh, it is more triples, more troubles, more triples, more troubles. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine, which is whatever, which is uh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Gamesters of Triskelion. That's uh, a great it's title. A, it's a great title. It's pretty descriptive, but you know, it's it, it, it's it's it conveys that sort of pulpy sci-fi thing again. A piece of the action. This is a good one, I think, because yeah. it's of the genre and of the kind of milieu that the episode takes place in, if you know what I mean. It's not just a quotation, but it's a kind of, it gives a flavour of the episode. Definitely. That gangster, it, it immediately places you in, in a certain space. And it's very, it's very cool. It's a, I, I, that's one of my favourites. Definitely. Yeah. Very fitting. Now, A Private Little War, I know this is an episode you talked about on your uh, podcast, The Sanctuary, over at We Made Treks. Quite a cynical episode, in some ways, about Vietnam. And I think the use of that phrase, A Private Little War, again, it's another one of these ones that has a slight satirical bite to it. Uh, you know, th- th- there's, there's something in that that is quite um, cutting, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's definitely definitely making the point that Vietnam is... Uh, something that's being played out almost by 
two chess players, I think. It's that kind of, yeah, well, yeah, we'll have our little game, you know, and we'll, we'll use all these people as fodder. And that there, there, I think there is definitely that little angry satirical bent. And it's, you know, it's an interesting, it's the most direct, one of the most direct Vietnam allegories, that episode that Star Trek ever does. Um, but that, yeah, that title is definitely quite pointed. I'm just wondering, is it actually a quotation from something that, again, I'm not familiar with? I'd kind of be interested to know. I'm struggling because all I get is Star Trek when I Google it. But if it's not a quote, I mean, it, it, it could be a quotation. Uh, if it's not, then it sort of sounds a bit like it. it sounds like something that someone, I mean, it's obviously designed to sound like something someone might say. Do you know what I mean? A- mm. Could have been from a speech, a political speech. It sounds that it sounds like that kind of thing, really. At the same time, there is something a little bit. It's a phrase that undercuts itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of self-satirizing in a way. Returns tomorrow again. You know, I can't remember which of these tomorrow episodes is which, but I love all their titles. Uh, I think this is the one with those glowing orbs, probably. Yeah, it's not the time travel. I think is, is tomorrow is yesterday's the uh, like US Air the time Force travel one, isn't it? Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one I this think is the, those weird disembodied aliens. Anyway, great title, great sci-fi. Title. <laughs> Patterns of Force. Now, this is a weirdly nondescript title i would say for quite a memorable episode this is the nazi episode isn't it patterns of force it seems surprising to me that it doesn't hint more directly towards the kind of nazi uh element which is the kind of key sort of the usp of this episode i guess isn't it it's an episode that's very deliberately you know serving as a nazi you know it's not even a parallel it's it's a very very you know you've got Kirk and Spock walking around in Nazi uniform. So I think maybe they felt like this, this title, if, the, if it was too on the nose, it would be too insensitive. So maybe they went for something that evokes a certain power without being completely too on the nose, given what everything else in the episode's on the nose, really. They, they didn't go the Doctor Who route of let's kill Hitler. No, no. <laughs> no words, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, okay. After Patterns of Force, we have, I think, the, the, another um shakespearean illusion and one that's very relevant here by any other name now this is an episode obviously quoting a line from romeo and juliet it's quite relevant to the the topic of the episode because really the theme of the episode is whether these kelvins not from the kelvin timeline but from the the whatever they are the kelvin universe or wherever it is they're from the andromeda galaxy i think they might be yeah they're from another galaxy anyway whoever they are these kelvins are they basically the, the theme of the episode really is by living as humans, do they basically turn into humans? Are they any different? They look like humans, they act like humans. What's the difference kind of thing? But their allusion, obviously, is to Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, this famous speech in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo, Ro- Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And this idea of a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And this idea that the names that we give things are essentially arbitrary. Now, this you could say cuts rather against what we're doing here in this episode where we're looking at names but you know this is the idea that that really that that calling it a rose makes no difference you know if you called it a blink or a nonk or you know whatever it was that flower would still be just as beautiful and it's quite a big topic in the kind of philosophy of language so sure the philosopher of language argued that language was essentially arbitrary that you know as juliet is suggesting Really, it doesn't matter that much what word we apply to what object. The key, the key point about words is that they allow us to differentiate one object from another. 
so you know that we have to have different words for different flowers so that we can say which one is which it doesn't really matter that much uh what word we give them now obviously something like onomatopoeia would be a, an exception to that and would kind of argue against that but it's maybe an interesting concept to think about when we're talking about these episode titles that you know uh it comes up again obviously in next gen with the episode darmok what's the relationship between words and the things that they refer to you know so sure talks about words as signs what's the relationship between the sign the signifier and the signified you know what's the kind of and in the episode darmok we find that i mean that's an interesting episode where the title itself is a sign is an illusion uh, it's not called whatever his name is, Dathon, the, the captain, the character who's actually in the program. It's called Darmok, who is a character who, you know, all we know about is this kind of mythological story that is unveiled one way or another in this, in the episode. So just as the Tamarians see Darmok as a meaningful name in the same way as they point out in that episode, as we see Juliet on her balcony as, as meaningful, um, you know, so the episode kind of almost challenges the the viewer to see Darmok as as meaning something as well. So I suppose all of these ideas are kind of slightly packed into that scene in Romeo and Juliet that, again, Star Trek here referencing Shakespeare is kind of bringing up here. Yeah, and and it's not it's that's not an episode that I can f- remember massively well. So it's really interesting. I I wouldn't have I, I knew I knew that the the ti- I knew the title is a reference to to that. To, to Romeo and Juliet, but it, it's it's not something, yeah, that that has leapt out at me in in that way. So that's really interesting. The Omega Glory, slightly notorious episode. This is the one that famously ends with the reading yeah. of the Declaration of is it the Declaration <laughs> of Independence? Yeah, it's bonkers. An anyway, <laughs> uh, and it, I think it's just the Omega Glory because it takes place on a planet called Omega. But you might think Omega. I mean, Omega. We think of the Alpha and the Omega. In a kind of religious context, Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Something about sort of being at the end of, of all whatever. But anyway, not sure there. It's an interesting, uh, quite a sort of sci-fi title. We get it again in Voyager, yeah. don't we, with the Omega Directive. But at least in, in Voyager, who knows? the Omega Directive is an actual thing. You know, that they've got that specific, at least that's the case. Whereas in this, it's a little bit like, well, why didn't you call it independence or declaration or, you know, some, I don't know, something a little bit more, yeah i mean it's cool it's a better title than those i'm not saying that those are better titles but it's i'm not quite sure what the point of it is it's a cool sci-fi title because it combines omega which sounds sort of uh both classical and also sort of futuristic with glory Mm. which sounds exciting and dramatic yeah you know it it promises a lot and then possibly fails to deliver on it the ultimate computer (laughs) that is pretty straightforward i would say do they have the ultimate yeah. computer? No, they don't. A lot of these episode titles actually could have a question mark at the end of them, I think, and the answer would typically be no. True. Bread and circuses, <laughs> obviously evoking the kind of Roman thing. Phrase used by a Roman writer to deplore the declining heroism of Romans after the Roman Republic ceased to exist and the Roman Empire began. Two things only the people anxiously desire, bread and circuses. Juvenile. Juvenile. Okay, there you go. So that's where the phrase yeah. comes from. But again, so yeah, so this idea of sort of cheap entertainment for the masses in a sense which is very much fitting with the you know it's both fitting with the content of the episode in that it is this kind of broadcast uh gladiatorial business and also the fact that it's set in this kind of ancient rome uh planet quite a clever title in that sense i think it's a good one hits hits both those things assignment earth another one of these ones with a quite dramatic colon a bit like operation annihilate 
Assignment Earth is the one that was a kind of backdoor pilot, wasn't it, for mm, the, the series Seven. that never got made, the Gary Seven series. Yeah, good. Again, slightly pulpy kind of, you know. Yeah, this is a whatever it, it is, Man from Uncle, you know, kind of. Uh, yeah, it would have made a good this kind of thing. Good title series for title. A show, actually. Assignment yeah, Earth. definitely. Yeah, yeah maybe have. that's what they were thinking at the time. On to season three, the notorious Spock's brain. That's what it says in the tin. Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> don't know what more we can say about that one. The Enterprise incident, great title, could be applied to any one of probably about 200 Star Trek episodes, possibly yeah, more. Easily. But, you know, so whatever. vague. They picked it for this one. It's a good title. It sounds cool. There is an incident involving <laughs> On the Enterprise. The Enterprise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paradise Syndrome. That's a cool one. That's that's very Michael Crichton, I think. Like the Andromeda Strain. It is a little bit. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Well, it's also the two words are working. It's, it's one of those ones where the two words work against each other, don't they? So Paradise sounds quite sort of old-fashioned and uh, sort of peaceful and lovely. Syndrome sounds like a problem and something quite medical and quite sort of uh, futuristic. When you look at the episode itself... I would say this is an odd one. I actually don't mind this episode. I know a lot of people hate it. It's the one where Kirk goes and lives with the Native American type people and ends up losing his memory and, and marrying. Ah, and yeah. So and it is about this sort of idea of what happens if you take this futuristic man and put him in a kind of bucolic utopian situation uh, with no technology and none of these kind of trappings. And, and I suppose the syndrome is that he, loves it and and you know accepts it and kind of is drawn into it which i guess is a threat to us and to star trek and to everyone who needs him to be on the bridge of the enterprise being a kind of futuristic captain i think it's a weird title for that episode because it does suggest something a bit more sci-fi and actually it's a weirdly un-sci-fi episode in a sense in that it's really about kirk living with these native americans and you know what's going on there but there we go and the children shall lead is a quotation from Isaiah eleven six. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the children shall lead them. Uh, so I guess this idea that when the children are in charge, everything is all kind of gone to hell and things are not as they as they normally are. I think it fits the episode because it's all it has that, um, you know, idea of children under the influence of a like evil spirit taking control and that kind of thing. So it's got, I can't really remember that episode to be honest, but it, it, it fits in terms of that actual plot specific, I guess, you know, illusion. Now, interestingly, I'm just looking at a gloss on this, this uh, biblical phrase. This is looking forward to the point where Jesus will return remove the curse of sin from our world and restore peace to all creation. And as a result of this, all these animals will live in harmony and the children will lead. So weirdly, it's actually not, I, in my cynical, irreligious way, assumed that this was a bad thing that the children will lead. This may be because I've seen the Star Trek episode, but actually the the phrase in itself, the, the illusion that's being picked up on there is in some ways supposed to be maybe a positive one. There you go. It's quite descriptive. It's quite a, you know. It's good. It was an easy, an easy, an easy pick. 
Is there in truth no beauty? That is a classic choice. Episode. We are getting an actual question mark for once. Now, this, I think, is a loose quotation of the uh, beauty is truth, truth beauty, which, again, I'm going to say Keats, but certainly it's a romantic poet. Yes, it is Keats. Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. I think that's what it's alluding to. And, and I suppose this idea that, you know, something that is supposedly hideously ugly may, that, that you know, that, that kind of beauty and, and ugliness and so on may be in the eye of the beholder to some extent. And, you know, if beauty is truth and truth is beauty, that there is something, it's quite a Star Trek message. It's quite a kind of scientific message. You could say, you know, that knowing the truth about something is to recognise the the value of it in some way. Spectra the gun. We're in the Wild West. I'm not quite sure what the spectre is, but it sounds cool. Similar to a piece of the action, I suppose, in that it's trying to evoke, you know, that one was gangsters, this one's westerns, and I suppose it it works on that basic level, doesn't it? Yeah. Day of the Dove, we're talking about peace, a nice bit of alliteration. My instinct with this one is that Dove is a reference to uh, people... The, the the sort of name for the Dobbs, the, the peace marchers, the kind of, you know, particularly in the 60s and, and a political term, you know, the idea of a Dove being somebody who is, uh, you know, more of a, in some senses, maybe a liberal if you want to go down a particular road. So the, I, th- I think there are... Like there Doves are certain, and Hawks, basically. Yeah, Doves that, and that Hawks, that, essentially. Yeah, okay. That's an interesting point. So it's not it's not just a kind of generic allusion to peace, but something a bit more specific to the I think era. so. That may well be true. It was originally called For They Shall Inherit as well. The, the original oh, wow. title okay. was For They Shall Inherit. So I don't know. The meek. That, was the, that was the working title. Is mm. that the, the meek who shall inherit? Well, that's interesting. You, well, that, you might think, yeah. Interesting. So actually a more religious title, possibly, that's been replaced by something a bit more, again, maybe you're right, maybe a bit more contemporary. Now, this has got to win all the prizes, I think. Probably the longest episode title in Star Trek. I might be wrong, I haven't checked. For the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. Beautiful line, you would assume, is taken from Shakespeare or something. I mean, it is pretty much a line of iambic pentameter. As far as I know, it's not. It's just from the episode itself. And so the, the, you know, the line comes up in the episode, but it's a absolute classic. I think only the original series will get away with an episode title like that. It's kind of classic old school Star Trek title. I think it's been topped in terms of length now by the lamb's knife cares not for the butcher's cry in You could be right. Discovery. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I Which think we will so. certainly come to at some point. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on. Tholian Webb's pretty pretty self-explanatory plato's stepchildren now here we're in the kind of classical situation again why are they plato's stepchildren why are they what's it to do with plato is this to do with plato's republic are they stepchildren in the sense that it's gone wrong he said spock's observation i'm getting this from memory alpha spock's observation that plato desired justice above all was something that he said in the republic plato's uh famous the uh piece of work the philosopher envisioned justice as the highest ideal to which any state could aspire achieved through the harmonious interplay of wisdom courage and temperance so i think it's specifically the idea that these these the the, the maybe the stepchildren is a i don't i don't quite know i, th- I think it's just questioning the re- the republic and what he was putting in those ideas because it is those characters who basically make kirk and uhura and spock dance to their tune 
throughout this episode. So they sort of take control of them in many ways. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's not completely on the, on the face of it clear, but it, it definitely leans into something Spock mentions, I suppose. And the classical feel of it all, of like bread and circuses. Wink of an eye, they move really quickly. I don't think that's... <laughs> I mean, we get we get It's a Voyager-esque it, title, is it, that is. is it, it is a very Voyager-esque title. Is it a quotation? It might be from something, but whether or not it is, I'm not sure. Show the blink of, of an eye. eye. I mean, it's an expression, isn't it? You would normally say a blink of an eye, not a wink of an eye. That's an interesting point. But anyway, yeah, the empath is about an empath. Elan of Troyes. Now, <laughs> it's quite descriptive... I quite like the fact that, it, I mean, it's basically, in case you don't get it, that it's a reference to Helen of Troy. Calling it that, I think, makes it, like, really obvious, if you know what I mean. So Yeah, kind of it's a saying, nicer yeah, title. A, yeah. And better than saying, we're doing um, Tame of the Shrew here, a la mm. Ten Things I Hate About You. It's just a clever title. Yeah. Um, insofar as it's a sort of weird rhyme for the, the source material um whom gods destroy this is definitely a quotation this is from the idea whom gods destroy they first send mad henry wadsworth longfellow quoted it in the mask of pandora apparently but it, it people have thought it's from euripides but it's it's often wrong, wrongly attributed to euripides interesting idea obviously this is an episode about madness and uh you know crazy people doing crazy things um and a rather grand literary illusion let that be your last battlefield again great episode title it's the one with belay and um oh the i can't remember the name of the other guy the one with the one one side is white one side is black of their face yeah and they end up being the two one is chasing the loci is chasing belay belay so that there's there's loci could be loki you know there are there are there is the idea of the trickster and the two sides of you know, there's a, a racial allegories going on, and their last battlefield turns out to be their their home planet, which has been white nuked basically by their own species while they've been gone. So that's kind of the reference point there. I think there might even be a line that says, you know, that's their last battlefield or something along those lines. But it's a very um, kind of it does feel kind of biblical, doesn't it? You know, let that be your last yeah. battlefield. It's, it feels definitely the mark of Gideon. Gideon is the name of the planet. That Which Survives, great zombie movie that was never made. I mean, <laughs> it's a brilliant title. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Whether or not title. the episode quite lives up to it, I'm not sure. But, you know, great title. Mm. The Lights of Zetar, mm. great sort Very of sci-fi cool. title. Requiem for Methuselah. Now, Methuselah was an extremely old man in the Bible, yeah. right? So this is, you know, alluding to the idea that the title character in this uh He's a very old man who has been all these people, Mozart and whoever else it was. Uh, Methuselah was a biblical patriarch said to have died ah. at the age of 969. He lived the longest of all figures mentioned wow. in the Bible. So there we go. That's pretty good. I don't That's know a good that the suggestion span. is necessarily that this guy is, is the same person, but, you know, it's it's a reference to a very old man. Season three has the best titles. I I, I really think this. It's, it's the worst, worst episodes, season. Best of titles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it really does. They're all really good, pretty much. In fact, if you just took some of those episode titles and wrote your own bit of fanfic, yeah. you might Brilliant. find it would turn out better than some of those season three episodes. <laughs> It'd be Definitely. an interesting... Uh, there was a great... When um, uh, Earl Grey were doing a series all about the unproduced episodes of Next Gen, and they would do a thing where they'd put up on the Babel conference just the title and then ask people, what do you think this title... What was this pitch going to be about? Uh, and some of the ideas that people came up with were brilliant and 
I think, frankly, more interesting than the, the <laughs> pitches that were actually, you know, being taken. The Way to Eden, this is the hippie episode. Obviously, they're going to a planet called Eden, but they're also, you know, uh, it's, it's, they, they want to return to a kind of <laughs> Edenic, utopian episode. kind of lifestyle. Uh, the Cloudminders, I quite like that as a title. They, they live in the clouds. I'm not sure what they're minding exactly, uh, except their own business. They're, they're ignoring the plight of the people down below who are suffering and, and living a miserable life of toil. Savage Curtain. Now, that, to me, you, you can't help thinking of the Iron Curtain. But why is it a Savage Curtain? I suppose it can't be an Iron Curtain because they're not literally in the Cold War anymore. But the curtain, I assume, is the the like boundary between the good and the bad. You know, we have Abraham Lincoln on one side and Genghis Khan, don't we, on the other in that episode. So it's the a bit Savage ambiguous, Curtain is a one. sort of slightly more good and evil version of the Iron Curtain, maybe. Uh, maybe making it, who knows, maybe if Churchill had called it a Savage Curtain, that yeah. might have helped. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 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 Nearly wrapping up with the original series, All Our Yesterdays, beautiful title. I love you know, that. Again, yeah. lovely sci-fi title. Interesting episode as well. And then finally, Turnabout Intruder. Now, is it a turnabout? Is that an instruction? Turnabout Intruder. I have no idea. That is b- bizarre. What is a turnabout intruder? I suppose it's, it's, a tur- <laughs> it's a turnabout insofar as it's an intruder that is has sort of turned up. It's not who it says it is. It's a kind of... It's a turnabout? I don't know. Whatever. It's bizarre. It's a it's a really schlocky proper schlocky title. Yeah, which is fair enough. We started really with the man trap, we've ended with turnabout intruder. Yeah. It <laughs> promises drama and excitement and kind of hijinks and doesn't deliver. It delivers some interesting <laughs> scenes where William Shatner plays a woman playing William Shatner. Quite well, we got some I good say. gifts. He, he out does of a pretty it, good though. job. Yeah, we maybe we got yeah. some good gifts out of it. Um, <laughs> on that glorious note, I think maybe it's time for us to wrap up this conversation for now. I mean, we always knew TOS was probably going to be one of the richest uh, minds yeah. to to tap for these episode titles. We will come back. We should look at the uh, animated series as well before we yeah, leap forward into next one. gen. Um, I suspect some of the kind of Rick Berman era Star Treks we might find, particularly Next Gen and Voyager, uh, slightly slimmer pickings because, <laughs> you know, notoriously they went for these quite yeah. descriptive, quite boring sort of the X, the Y, the Z episodes. Not always though. Well, there, there are some, you know, some gems in there and some interesting mm. ones in there, but we'll leave that here for now and we will be back to discuss some more names in a future episode. Sounds good. But Tony, thank you so much for joining me. Looking at Star Trek's episode names is not the only thing we've been doing here on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. It, you, I tap dance with my eyes. That's what I tell people. <laughs> just yeah. I, I don't don't look at my feet. Just look at my eyes and my jazz hands. As yeah. long as I'm as long as I'm looking like I'm having a good time, I'm dancing. <laughs> That's the most important part. Yeah, and just follow the top hat and the cane. Just don't yeah. look at my feet. <laughs> yeah. If the rhythm is right and my eyes are smiling, all is good. Uh, oh, funny. cosplay ideas, <laughs> cosplay ideas. <laughs> the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Okay, I was just going to say, I just appreciate that we're seeing these dramatic makeup jobs and prosthetic jobs because it, the whole, let's do a little forehead thing and call it an alien 
because he's got really old in Next Generation. <laughs> And in the original series. The original series, you can kind of forgive because of the budgetary restraints. But uh, but with TNG, it's just like, really? Another little forehead thing or a little thing, you know, at the bridge of the nose between the eyes? Really? Really? Come on. Oh, it got really tiring in Voyager, too. The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL... I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL, and I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic, and then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual. But like you said, she kind of talks to that. And But now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural. But at the time, it felt a little odd. The Ready Room. Do you think that if Picard were being made, if we could go back to the golden age of TNG, mm-hmm. DS9, Voyager, Enterprise? We call it we the had, Berman era, Chris. Okay. Oh, is it the Berman era? It's BE. Okay. Yeah. If we can go yes. back to 1996 <laughs> BE. Yeah. <laughs> when we had two hour pilots for Star Trek series, do you think that these three episodes Remembrance, Maps and Legends, and The End is the Beginning, would have actually been a single episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended already.